0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the opened book under the covering title of the Cleroma, the Fullness. And the subject before us immediately is a part of chapter one of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of scripture together. So those of you who are listening to this recording who care to join us, will you switch off for a little while while we read together Romans, the 8th chapter. In our last study, we were dealing with Colossians, chapter 1, and our attention was directed particularly to verses 16 to 19. Christ, the image of the invisible God, Christ, the firstborn of every creature, Christ, the Creator of things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, Christ who must have the preeminence, Christ to His head of the body, the Church, Christ the firstborn from the dead, and it pleased the Father that in Him should all the fullness dwell. Well, now the subject before us, particularly this evening, is what we find in verse 22. But there's a few verses in between that will have to be mentioned. And that, in verse 22, is the glorious fact of our future presentation at court. The high court, friends. Not the court of an earthly monarch, but in heaven itself. We are to be presented. Now, if we had any qualms and troubles about this, they're already quietened by what we've seen in verse 12. Let's go over that again. It belongs to our peace. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us. Now that's past, isn't it? It's something done. Which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Now that is echoed in verse 22. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Chapter, Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 12, gives you the basis of it. Chapter 1, 22, gives you the consequence of it. In verse 12, we thank the Father for what he has done. In verse 22, we are directed to the work of the Son and what he has done. And when you come to think of it, We have the combined work of the Father and the Son to make it possible for us to stand in the light and be in his sight and be able to lift up our heads and look everyone in the face in that day and answer the question, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Friends, it seems almost too good to be true We are very respectable people, otherwise we wouldn't be here this evening. But if everything that constituted our lives, the secret things that we hardly understand and know, were all suddenly displayed on the screen, we wouldn't think much of ourselves. But when that day comes, there's going to be no qualms, no hesitation, no hanging our head, for the whole thing from beginning to end is resting in the grace of God and the gift of his Son. Well now, before we go to the presentation which we had in verse 22, we may notice one or two things that will help us as we approach it. We are delivered out of verse 13. We have been delivered out of, not merely from, the authority of darkness. So now, We are going to be presented unto. Two sides. We are delivered out. Of one authority. We are presented. To another. We are translated. Into. The kingdom of God's dear son. We are reconciled. By his death. We are redeemed. By the blood of Christ. We have peace by the blood of his cross. So you see, there's a good deal of going and coming in this. Something is said, and then something is built upon it. And all the way through, there is one reference to anything that we've been asked to do to make our salvation or our acceptance sure. You could depend upon it that if we did anything, we should only spoil it. We stand like the man in the parable We don't stand in the presence of God and say, God, I thank Thee. I'm not as others are. Some are going to the cinema and some are sitting glued to the TV, but we are in chapel. We don't say that. We don't say that. At least I hope we don't say that. We say, God, be merciful. To me. And in myself still, a sinner. And you know, the publican didn't say a sinner. Did you know that? Oh, he was thinking a lot about himself, that man at that time. He was so taken up with himself, he forgot everybody else. He said, God be merciful to be the sinner. And he didn't compare himself with anybody. The fallacy did the comparing. But he didn't. It was between him and God only. That's where we are. However long we've been on the path of the Christian pathway, we're still in that position. We still have to say, If Christ can falter, I must fall. I look to thee to be supplied with life, with power, with strength, with all. Rich souls may glory in their store, but Jesus will receive the poor. What may not be poor in this world's goods, but poor in any idea of ever purchasing their salvation or their acceptance. So we look now at verse 20 where we read and having made peace through the blood of his cross and you'll find that is an echo from Ephesians. He is our peace who hath made them both one to do with reconciliation you see by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This again is an echo of Ephesians He says, with a view to a dispensation of the fullness of the seasons, when it shall gather together in one all things in Christ, whether in heaven or on earth. Well, to gather together under one head, and Christ the head, is to be reconciled. You'll never be there otherwise. So, saying it from two points of view sometimes is useful. Now it comes to ourselves. It's one thing to be thinking about principalities and powers It's another thing to think about ourselves. And you. You. Now you need reconciling. And the need for reconciliation is always because there's enmity somewhere. If you've never had a quarrel with anybody, you don't have to wake it up. If there's never been any war, you don't have to make peace. And if you need reconciliation, depend upon it, there's enmity somewhere. Now, first of all, he says, you were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. If you look back to Ephesians, you'll find there's another basis of alienation and another need to be reconciled. In Ephesians chapter 2, we are told in verse 12 what sort of people we were by nature that at that time you were without Christ being aliens from the citizenship as the word commonwealth is of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you sometimes were far off or made nigh by the blood of Christ So, there's one alienation. An alienation for which we're not responsible. We are not responsible for being born English people. And these were alienated, not because they'd done anything, but because they were Gentiles. The people of Israel were the people who were nigh unto God, although they were a bad lot. And the Gentiles were far off, although some of them were pretty good. It wasn't a matter whether they'd done anything or hadn't done anything. It was a sheer fact that God had chosen Israel to be his people and he let the rest of the world go on in their darkness until the Apostle Paul said, during that time he winked at the now commanded all men everywhere to repent. The beginning of the bringing the Gentiles back had started. So there's one alienation. Now in chapter 4 of Ephesians we've got another one. We are doubly alienated friends. We are alienated by our birth and we are alienated by our deeds. 418 Having the understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. What a position. Without God, without Christ. And cut off by our alienation from the source of life. Alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Ignorance. Not really knowing the mind and will of God shuts you out. We're not saved by what we know. And we've got to be watchful about being puffed up by what we know, as Paul says. But all never let us undervalue ignorance of the mind and will of God. But if only we knew his will. If only we knew his word. If only we knew his purpose in the true and foolish sense. It must make an essential difference to us. So it puts it here. Because of the blindness of their heart. So Ephesians tells us we're alienated from two points of view. And then, in Colossians, we've got it once more. Colossians 1.21 We are aliens, because we are enemies in our mind by wicked works. Keep the Ephesians, because there's an enmity in Ephesians. Colossians 2, uh, Ephesians 2, verse 15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity. So there's an enmity that has to be abolished. Oh, of course, if you're going to reconcile somebody, you've got to cancel the enmity. And notice the coming into this strange expression in his flesh. We've got it in Colossians, so we'll see it again in a moment. So there we have an enmity. And in verse 16, that he might reconcile thee both, the articles there, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. All this enmity had to be dealt with. And how was it dealt with? It was dealt with in the person of Christ. He was slain, friends, in disposing of this enmity. Because, coming back to Colossians, it says, in the body of his flesh through death. Oh yes, this is the only means. The only way in which reconciliation can be brought in is by the fact that our Saviour left the glory, became a man. Let's look at one or two passages which stress that. Ephesians, we've already read, speaks of the enmity, and in his flesh, and in his flesh alone was it possible to dispose of it. In another passage we read the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, That wasn't the middle wall of partition, but it was the same idea, it was something that kept you out. And Hebrews commenting upon it says, the veil that is to say, his flesh. Now if Christ had never died, his very perfection here in this life would have been a veil between us and God. The more we have to say he's perfect, the more it would have condemned us. We are not saved. Simply because Christ came. We are saved because he came with one object. What was that object? Let the scriptures speak plainly to us. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 4. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. God says so. Although the law of Moses enjoined that they should offer the blood of bulls and goats. And they should have given, as a result, have received forgiveness of sins. Yet they were only types and shadows pointing on to the one offering. Because Romans says, for the remission of sins of the past, as well as the present, all are settled by that one offering. So he says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice, an offering, thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Now that's the answer. Not the body of bulls or of goats, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure, then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. And why did he come? Verse 10. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. We must remember that if the Lord Jesus Christ did not become a man and was not really flesh and blood We have no redeemer. Redemption is always associated with an offering of blood. And he stooped down to become a man. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. And you remember that John opens his gospel and says, in the beginning was the word the word was with God. The word was God. All things were made by him. And then he says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The fact that he in the beginning made all things would never have saved us. The only way whereby we could be saved or reconciled and receive peace and forgiveness was if he should stoop down to become a man and that wouldn't have saved us. If he'd become the most glorious man the earth had ever seen, it would not have saved us. If he'd avoided the cross, all his life would not have saved us. He came with one specific purpose, to do what sacrifice and offering could never do, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You may say to me, oh, well, I know that, friends, you can't know it too much or too well. And you can't know it too insistently when you're speaking to others. It is not sufficient that somebody nods his head and believes this and believes that and believes the other. That may be a patronising of God. What we've got to nod our head and believe is that all have sinned, including ourselves, and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. If we omit that, We're on the wrong side still. So we have the insistence. John writing in his epistle, he said, this is the spirit of Antichrist that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He wrote in his first epistle to Timothy, he says there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. But in case we should think of him only as a man, Before that chapter ends, he says something else. In that very same epistle, he says, Confessedly great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest where? In the flesh. Same words. In the body of his flesh through death to save us. In the body of that flesh, God was manifested. And so we have in Colossians chapter 2, Verse 9, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead, bodily, not merely spiritually, bodily. There's a reason why the church, which is the fullness of him, is called the body of Christ. Or there are reasons here that may baffle us, but they're there. So you see this insistence. And he does not say, in verse 22 of Colossians 1, in the body of his flesh, He reconciled us, or he will present us. It's in the body of his flesh through death. He says it again in Hebrews chapter 2. Let me quote the verses, because they are to the point. Hebrews 2, where, in verse 14, he said, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same The true death, you see? He took part of the same, but the true death. Not because he was born at Bethlehem. That was the beginning. This is the end. The true death, he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil, and deliver them. Now, the word destroy is a word that we've got to look at. Because you will find that this means uh, to abrogate, to abolish. And in this, uh, in the um, epistle to the Romans, it comes quite a number of times, only God save us, going all over the scriptures, to look at a few passages together. This word to abolish. Chapter 3 of Romans chapter 3 of Romans, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? That's the word. "Rob Rob it of its influence without effect. Or verse 31. Do we then make void the law of God, the law through faith? Do we empty it of its meaning? Or chapter 4, 14. But if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. And chapter 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, made of none effect, abrogated, put out of working order, disposed of, And we might as well get the other. Chapter 7, verse 2. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed. The marriage is none effect. It's finished. And in verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law that being dead when we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in oldness of debtor. Delivered from. Again, see how many ways this word abrogate or destroy is used. Well, that's what he did. In the offering of himself, he cut right through all those obligations which had put condemnation onto us. Canceled them. Set us free. Well, now I think it's time we looked a little bit more closely at this word in verse 22. So, in my usual custom, we'll look at another verse. I might as well have a poke at myself and let somebody else do it afterwards, mightn't I? So, the other verse we're going to look at is verse 28. Whom we preach, warning every man, and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. There's a two-fold presentation in front of us, friends. The first and most glorious one is that we are going to be presented by the Lord himself. And the basis of it is his finished work. And then Paul comes along, all oh, very, very meekly and very lowly. He says, "And you know, I want to be there too. And I want to present you. I shall present you because I died for you. I shall want to present you because I taught you. And you believed it. We may not get to that one tonight, this verse 28. It may come better when we reach it in its true place. But there's a two-fold presentation. One, through the finished work of Christ, and then those who believe him and grow in the truth and, be, and become, as it were, as he says, perfect. Because that's a word that wants examining. We mustn't make a mistake there. So we'll come back to verse 22 and it may be sufficient for us this evening to get that presented, that presentation clear in our minds. We've got so far that it's in in the body of his flesh through death. That's the only vehicle. There are all sorts of ways in which you may be presented at court, if you belong to a certain grade in society, or if you have made some outstanding contribution to life in any realm of art or science or business. But the only ground of presentation here is that Christ has died for you. No possibility of getting in otherwise. There's a reason why in one of the parables there's a little bit comes at the end, strange little bit, after the guests are all assembled at the wedding, the king goes round and he says to one man, he says, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? Well, he didn't say, Oh, well, I didn't see any reason. No, no, no. It's said he was speechless. we got plenty of arguments just now what we would do and what we wouldn't do, but not then. You cannot gate crash into this. You cannot get in by somebody else's favor. You can't bribe anybody or buy tickets. Unless you are presented by Christ, you'll never be presented at all. There's a hymn in our book. It's written, it was written by a lady who was in her 80th year. I think I've told you before. And she died when she was 101. And in that hymn, she's written another version of Nearer, my God, to thee. She says, angels will stand aside. Not angels will welcome thee. Angels will stand aside. No one but Christ beside brings me to thee. That's the stuff, friends. That's where we want to be. Nobody could give us an introduction. It wouldn't be worth it. Because the challenge would always be waiting for us. And we couldn't meet that challenge outside of Christ. But when we're presented, not one of us are going to be looking around and saying, I wonder if so and so is here. Because you see, in a presentation here, if at the last minute it could be actually demonstrated that you had committed a felony or done something contrary to the law of the realm, you'd be out of it. Oh yes, you could not be. And all of us are out of it already by nature. But God who knew all about this recording tape long before we started using it knows that one of the wonders of that recording tape is that if our brother Mr. Ramsey were to put it on again and we started using it all over again all that I'm saying now that's on it would vanish Completely go, you wouldn't find a spot of it. Marvel, isn't it? If God can so use a thing like that that could utterly blot out from existence, we can trust Him that He means the same thing when He says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud, I've cast them behind my back, I've buried them in the depths of the sea, as far as the east is from the west. He uses all sorts of figures to tell you the one thing. And then He sums it all up and says, their sins, and iniquities will I remember. No more. Isn't it wonderful that God can forget? You might say to a person who wasn't prepared for what you were going to say, do you think God ever has a lapse of memory? Do you think he ever forgets anything? Oh no, he remembers it all. Say, aren't you glad that you're wrong? He says that he can blot it out of his mind. Forget. So when we come to that day and the presentation takes place, He's going to make us so completely fitted. We're going to have no worries. We're not going to look round any corners. We're going to look them all straight in the eye. And say, you holy beings who have never fallen, never know what sin is. I do. But it's not troubling me now. When I look at the right hand, I'm not looking where the accuser sits. That's his place at the right hand in the court of Israel. When I look at the right hand, instead of being one that would be accuser, I see one who loved me and gave himself for me. And while that's true, this presentation need give us not anything but joy in contemplation. Now, there's two ways in which this presentation is mentioned in the Scriptures. When you turn to the Epistle of Jude, and if you know anything about the Epistle of Jude, you know it's a shocking Statement that it makes about the awful corruption of the times. It speaks about the angels that sinned. It speaks about the dreadful things that happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. It speaks about the devil and the ungodly in the days of Enoch and speaks about those who were clouds without water and twice dead and Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, and it ends up, in spite of all that surrounding, and all that corruption, verse 24, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling, and to present you faultless. Present you faultless. Look at those people. But before we go further, Look at the beginning of this same epistle of Jude. First verse. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. We are preserved. Now, in the midst of corruption, we're going to be presented then. But now there's a, a little difference. The Greek word used by Jude is the word histini. Never mind whether you know what it means, just listen to it. Histini. The Greek word used by Paul is palestini. Now, Jude says you're going to be presented before, before the presence of his glory. But the epistle to the Ephesians and the epistle to the Colossians says you're going to be presented beside him. It's a deeper word. The one is in front of the throne and the other is with him. Because you know the glorious position of the church of the one body is not to be before the throne but seated together in heavenly places where Christ sits. So the very word is changed. In Jude, it's a wonderful presentation before the throne, he's seen it. But Paul adds the word para, beside, alongside, when he speaks about the presentation of the church of the one body. Now, as he has used this reference for presentation in Ephesians, I think we must include verse 27 of chapter 5. Verse 26 says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's a beauty treatment, isn't it? No spot, no wrinkle. But that it should be holy and without blemish. Look back at chapter one of the same epistle. Verse 4, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love. God chose us before we were born that we should ultimately be without blame. And Christ by his work his cleansing and his work for us has guaranteed that we shall be presented without blemish, without blame. Now, in Colossians, there's a little addition. It's even more wonderful. It says here, in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable, and then he adds these words, and unreprovable. That's a little addition. Now, this is belonging to us, so we want to be sure what it all means. First of all, let's collect together the words that mean without blemish. Now, we've looked at two of them. I'll only mention them again. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us that we should be without blame, and Ephesians 5.27 is going to present us without blame or blemish, the word is. And in Colossians 1.22, the word is unblameable, it still means without a blemish. Now you'll discover what that blemish means if you turn to Hebrews, because it's a sacrificial word. Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more till the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now that looks back to the Levitical law. The law of Leviticus said it shall be perfect to be accepted. Whether it be a a sacrifice, or whether it be the priest that offered. There was a, a very great scrutiny of the priest even from a physical point of view. If you could have seen one of the priests of Israel in those days, you'd see the finest specimen of the race. Because if he had anything wrong with him, Anything missing, anything superfluous, if he got a little growth or anything that you might imagine a person to have, he was out of it. He must be without blemish. He he, he may have been a simple person, but physically he must be a perfect specimen. And the same with the animal. Anything wrong with it, it was out. Don't you see what God is saying to you and me, friends? He says, you are going to be so accepted in the Beloved that in the temple of God, in the temple of God, you'll find your place. You'll be without blemish. You'll be like the sacrifice to the priest. And in, in while we've got this in mind, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 19, you'll find there again it has to do with sacrifice. 1 Peter 1.19 We are not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the character of the Lamb of God. Well, then the other word, in Colossians, unreprovable. We are to be without blemish, that's the temple word, Unreprovable is the law court word. Now, the verb that gives us this word, unreprovable, occurs six times in the Acts of the Apostles and once in the Epistle to the Romans. So, the word without blemish occurs seven times in the New Testament and the word unreprovable, this particular word, occurs Six times in the Acts and once in Romans. So shall we look at these in the Acts of the Apostles? They are all grouped together. It won't take us a minute or two. The Acts of the Apostles, 19th chapter, verse 38. This is the town clerk speaking. Verse 35. The town clerk has been an uproar. He says in verse 38, Wherefore did Demetrius and the craftsmen which are with him have a matter against any man. The law is open, and there are deputies. Let them impede one another. If they have a matter against anyone, that's if they've got something that is reprovable. Same idea. We'll see it presently grow in front of us. Verse 40. For we are in danger to be called in question called in question. Same word as the word unreprovable. When I say the same word, one is a noun and one is a verb. It doesn't matter does it. I mean, you sing a song, you don't sing a speech. So, if I can prove by the verb, the meaning of the word, it's just the same. Look at chapter 23 of the Acts of the Apostles. Verse 28. But when I would have known the cause whereof, they accused him. That's the word reprovable. He was reprovable. Accused. Or look at the verse 29. And when I perceived, whom I perceived to be accused of questions of their law. Accused. 26. Acts 26. Verse 2. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching of all things whereof I am accused. Of the Jews. And verse 7, the last reference, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Well, now you know what I'm going to say now. I've said it so many times, accused. We read Romans the eighth chapter, didn't we? I think we'd better look at it again, even though we know it by heart. Romans 8, verse 31. He summed up now the work of Christ on our behalf, and all the purpose of God vested in him. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything? Here it is. Who's going to accuse us? Zechariah chapter three. I saw the priest and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him or to accuse him. He says, "Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justified. It's Christ that died, who rose again. Rather than this, right all oh, makes intercession for us. He piles it up." So we come back to Colossians. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy. Now that includes two things. It includes without blemish from the sacrificial priestly point of view. It includes an absolute discharge in the law court of God. No finger can be pointed at you. All debts cancelled. All sins forgiven. Everything lifted. And instead of that a positive acceptance in the beloved. Oh, what a position we have. Would you believe it, friends, that are some still think that because we believe the teaching of Ephesians and Colossians, we haven't got any gospel to preach. It would make you smile if he didn't pity the people. And when we hear some of the gospels they preach... The muddle and mix-up there is with regard to parables of sowers, and all because they haven't obeyed the principle, rightly divide the word of truth. We have no need to apologise, but it is good to remember that if ever the charge is made, we can soon begin to to give them, even the believer, a gospel that they perhaps have never yet endorsed or believed. Well now that means to say we've looked again at this epistle from another angle. We've considered the person and he always must be first the creator. The creator of heaven and earth, visible and invisible. We've seen that he's the firstborn in all creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And that one, and that one alone is the one who became our kinsman-redeemer. And largely what we are saying here is the expansion in doctrinal terms of what's incipient in the word redeemer in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, every time you read the word redeemer, it always means the next of kin. No word in it meaning meaning redemption at all. It means your husband's brother, your next of kin. But because in the law of Moses the next of kin had the right to redeem and was the avenger of blood, that was impressed upon that people that the only redeemer they could look for was one who was next of kin. And then you go into the prophets and you find that word redeemer is used of God himself. The Lord of hosts is the kinsman-redeemer. And Job knew it. When he got desperation with his comforters and turned away from her, he said, I know that my redeemer liveth. Kinsman-redeemer. And here we have the kinsman-redeemer in fuller manifestation. So never give up the thought that it's in the body of his flesh. If he weren't flesh and blood as we were, we'd still be looking for a redeemer, for that's the only one God knows. The only one the Old Testament knows. The only one that the Apostle Paul or John or Peter or any of them know. So let's be grateful that in his mercy He stooped to become a man. And there must have been a reason, a compelling reason and we get a hint of it in 1 Corinthians 15, as by man came death. By man came the resurrection of the dead. As he said, but man has sinned. It's no good putting an animal in his place. A lamb may be a picture of Christ, but that lamb will never take away sins and never touch a conscience. All they were given as pictures till he came. And if he'd remained in glory, our redemption would still be undone. If he laid it upon an angel, it would still be undone. So there's another word that we want to remember and with that i close. Himself. Himself. Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life, himself, a ransom for many. Himself. It's so easy to give something else, isn't it? You remember the three of them in the Old Testament? Simeon, Reuben, and Judah. One says, he'll offer this, one says, It offer that, I think, Reuben says, slay my two sons. Judah says, I offer myself. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not back, then I'll bear not merely blame, but the word in the Hebrew is sin forever. For how shall I ascend up to my father? And the lad be not with me. That's an anticipation of what Christ said. If I do not present this church perfect in the presence of the Father, something's gone wrong with my work and that's intolerable. We cannot believe it. So that instead of us saying it's presumption on our part to believe that we are saved and accepted and glory is certain. It's presumption on our part to believe that Christ could come and Christ could suffer and Christ could die and be raised again and then not be satisfied with his work. The prophet looking down the ages, it speaks about him who was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, but it ends up by saying he shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Friends, I don't think I'm asking you to do anything when I say are you going to be dissatisfied with the work that satisfies him? Never. If he's satisfied with it that's all I need for time and for eternity. Go away tonight thinking to yourself fancy, fancy I, I am going to be presented there Before angels, yes, before principalities, before powers. And all because of love that passes knowledge.